Good morning. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you yet, my name is Nathaniel. I get the privilege of serving as part of the team here. And today I'll be unpacking this passage from God's Word, which we just heard. Now, it really sucks to watch someone cry. I've heard it said recently that the worst thing is watching your mum cry, and that's, that's definitely a really hard thing to, to watch. But I think even worse for me uh, is watching my dad cry. Uh, I would say that's worse because my dad, he isn't the sort of guy who cries often. Um, dad is my dad. He's, he's strong. He's, he's the one who always keeps us safe. He's the one who would always fix a problem or find a solution or find a workaround. He's dad. Seeing dad so overcome with emotion that he can't hide it anymore, that, that makes me realize just how deeply serious the situation is doesn't happen often and it only happens when something has gone really, really wrong. There's just something so gut-wrenching, right, about watching emotion break through someone who is, always seems to have it together. For you, you might think of a parent, um, you might think of a boss or, or someone else entirely. I think if I was to come into the office and, and find Adam in tears, I would know that something had gone deeply, terribly wrong. And this is the sort of scene that we encounter at the start of today's passage. We encounter our savior, Jesus himself, overwhelmed by anxiety to the point where he's, he's sweating drops of blood. We see our shepherd, our savior, our king, crying out to God the Father. What could have possibly caused a reaction that strong? We're nearing the climactic end of, a, of our series titled, The Final Days of Jesus, The Week That Changed the World. We're on a journey with Jesus through the final week of his life. Uh, we've, to give, help us um, find our bearings as, as to where we're up to in this week, we've got a handy summary here we've been using. Um, we've got on Sunday, Jesus has his triumphal entry into Jerusalem uh, on a donkey. On Monday, he visits the, the massive temple and he throws out people who are abusing religion to make money. On Tuesday, he, he's questioned by the religious leaders and he gives teaching at the temple. On Wednesday, he has a fairly quiet day just teaching at the temple, but meanwhile, there's a storm cloud brewing. The chief priests, the, the teachers of the law, they're, they're trying to find a way to get rid of him without the crowds who loved him around. And then last week, uh, we heard about the events of Thursday. We heard about the betrayal, the supper, and the debate. We heard about how Jesus agreed to betray Jesus, Judas agreed to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus sat down to the, the traditional Passover meal with his disciples and instituted the meal that we know as the Lord's Supper. And then the disciples debated which of them was the greatest, and Jesus predicted Peter's denial. And now in today's passage, the rubber really hits the road. Jesus is about to go to the cross and Luke paints a vivid picture of the ordeal that he went through on the way. Now, I had the privilege of actually going and visiting Israel just before COVID hit, and I've walked along the route in Jerusalem where, where Jesus is taken in this passage. And so as I read it, as I, as I hear it, as I think through it, it feels particularly real and particularly vivid to me. So will you join me? Join me as we travel halfway around the world, as we travel around 2,000 years back in history to look in on the fateful events of that night so long ago. 
We'll see the depth of what Jesus went through for us. And through that, we will see how we have hope in him despite our deepest failures. So the first scene we have here uh, of, of the four that we're going to look at is the agony after a final meal with, meal with his followers, Jesus takes them on a short walk uh, just outside of Jerusalem to the public garden known as Gethsemane, uh, outside the walls of Jerusalem on the base of the Mount of Olives. Now, I've got a, I've got a bit of a, a diagram here, a, a digital representation of the city of Jerusalem. And you can see Jesus was probably down in this corner here is somewhere around where the Last Supper would have taken place. And they've walked through Jerusalem past the massive temple which dominates the skyline. There's the temple here and now they're on the Mount of Olives. They've walked down and around through the, through the Kidron Valley and across to the Garden of Gethsemane, somewhere around in this area here. So as these events unfold that we were about to dig into, Jesus is down there in, in the garden, looking up at the temple right there, full of his accusers, full of the chief priests and Pharisees who are plotting to kill him. Obviously, this is daytime. He would have um, been walking through about 10 o'clock at night, everything dark, but... If we were to look at this in nighttime, we'd just be a black screen. So, But Jesus is, has gone through with his disciples. They're, they're at the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, he's finished off the, the Passover meal, which we read earlier on, that he had eagerly desired. And now comes the part that he did not eagerly desire. Jesus, who always seemed to be on top of everything, who, who he suddenly seems troubled by the events that are unfolding, that the mood has shifted, the group now feels a deep, a deep sense of sorrow. And Jesus himself is so troubled, he, he withdraws from his disciples. He says to them, go, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He goes about a stone's throw away. And we read, he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus, God incarnate, fully man, fully God, appears to be hesitating, asking the Father if there is some other way to fulfill his mission. This is Jesus himself. He confronted the powerful Pharisees. He raised people from the dead. He proclaimed that the kingdom of God had arrived. What could cause this man of such resolve, such ability, such divinity to suddenly hesitate? The answer is found in the words of his prayer there. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now, Jesus is not talking about a, a literal cup here. Uh, he hasn't taken a glass of wine to go from the Last Supper. Rather, he's using a metaphor which is found throughout the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, the cup refers to God's wrath against sinners. It, it, it refers to God's judgment. Jesus knows that he is not just going to die. He's not just going to suffer. He's not just going to have a bad night. He is going to drink the full cup of God's righteous judgment against the sins of, of all those in humanity would, who would ever place their faith in Jesus. Jesus is about to go through a series of physical and emotional trials, as we'll see in the following scenes, and those are gonna be painful, but they, they barely affect Jesus at all in comparison to the spiritual 
agony he is going through here, just bracing himself for what is going to happen to him on that cross. We here today, we experience the effects of sin in the world. We deal with death and sickness and injustice and we wrestle with the the loss of loved ones and we see the hurt that we ourselves cause to the people around us who we love. And the reality of this sinful world can get pretty difficult for us to deal with. Jesus will experience the effects of sin, but here he is bracing to receive the punishment for sin. This is a punishment which we would never be able to endure. We, we wouldn't be able to make it through the wrath of God just for our own sin, for our own wrongdoing. But Jesus' mission was to drink that cup of wrath for all those who would ever place their faith in him. At the Last Supper just earlier, he'd explained how his body was to be given for you and his blood poured out for you. Jesus would drink that cup that should have been ours, and by doing so, he would achieve our rescue. And that was not an easy task. So Jesus cries out to God to take this cup from him, but he says, not my will, but yours be done. Even Jesus, God the Son, needed to submit to the will of the Father. And the Father did not remove that cup from him because there was no other way to achieve our salvation. He who did not spare his only son. He provided comfort to Jesus in that trial, but he didn't remove the trial. And I think that's an encouragement for us as well. We who cry out to God, wanting him to change a a situation that we're in, but sometimes it just doesn't change. Even for Jesus, the response was not to remove that situation, but to give him the strength to face what he had come to do. And Jesus is given one very significant comfort through this trial. Uh, It's not any of his disciples. Peter doesn't come up to give him a pat on the back and have a good chat. No, the, the disciples there falling asleep, exhausted from sorrow, we read. But God sent an angel from heaven who strengthened him. But even after the angel was there, he is still in agony. He's praying more earnestly. The weight of that cup is is heavy. Luke, who's a doctor, he records a particular medical detail which helps us to see into the depth of Jesus' suffering here. Uh, Verse 44, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, this is actually a medical condition which today is called hematohydrosis. Basically, in in very rare examples of the most extreme stress, our blood vessels can rupture, uh, and then the blood enters the sweat glands and is then expelled out through the sweat glands, so you end up sweating blood. And that's a small detail which helps us to appreciate the real depth of Jesus' anguish. Luke isn't using a metaphor here. He isn't, he isn't recording a, a, a bit of a general idea to help us get, a, get an idea of what Jesus was just mentally going through. He's recording a true series of events which Jesus went through for our sake. And as if this wasn't bad enough, by this time, all his disciples have fallen asleep, leaving Jesus alone to phase this agonizing situation. But his ordeal is just getting started. We've, we've seen the bitter weight of the full cup of God's judgment against sin that Jesus is preparing to drink. And in the next three scenes, we see Jesus experience the effects of that sin on the way to the cross. 
that leads us to the next scene, the arrest. So Jesus has finished praying. He goes to his disciples. He's, he's waking them up. He's saying, come on, guys, get up, get up, get up. And a crowd arrives, a crowd led by none other than Judas. The man who had, who had followed Jesus for three years, he's now taken a payout from the temple priests to betray Jesus. We read that Judas approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, a kiss on the cheek was how men in that day greeted close or trusted friends, a sign of trust, a sign of closeness, um, not something that guys do today. I haven't seen many blokes kiss each other to say hi, but maybe an equal, equal parallel for us might be the old, rather than a handshake, the old clap hands together, pull together, slap on the back, give a hug, that sort of, that sort of greeting that we might use to, to welcome someone who's a close friend who we're really happy to see. But Judas, he uses it to show the temple guards which one is the guy to arrest. But the disciples are here. The disciples are stirred into action. They are now ready to defend their Lord. They've woken up, they've had a nap. There is a moment of bravery. Peter, he has two swords, he pulls out one of them. He slices off the ear of the high priest's servant. I don't know why he slices off the ear. Maybe Peter's just a really bad shot with a sword. Um, maybe this is a warning shot. He's not going for the, the kill shot yet. I don't know, but he sliced off the guy's ear. A fight is about to happen. There's, there's tension in the air. And Jesus puts a stop to it. This is not his plan. He knows that he must drink this cup. He has accepted the Father's will. So he tells his disciples, no more of this. And he leans forward, heals the ear of that servant, just a casual display of the power he could have used to wipe out that entire group of soldiers. But he heals the ear of that servant and instead he rebukes their leaders. He says, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. These priests and elders, knowing that they couldn't get away with arresting Jesus on trumped up charges when there's heaps of people around, they've waited for night to come to arrest him. But Jesus allows evil to have its way so that God's plan will be fulfilled. And that's another familiar lesson that we see in practice, that God will sometimes allow unjust evil to happen so that his plan will be complete. The temple leaders here thought they're winning a victory, like the guy just gives up, he just surrenders himself. In reality, Jesus was in control the whole time. The time during which evil is permitted to triumph is fixed and limited by God. We see this here as, as next week, we're gonna celebrate the victory of Jesus over the death. And it seemed like death had won against Jesus here, but it hadn't. That time was fixed and limited. We see this in other parts of the Bible, like for example, the story of Job, where Satan is allowed to torment Job, but only for as long as, as God allows. We see this in our own lives where sometimes evil seems to win a battle even though God has always won the war. And we see this in the big picture of world history, right? That although evil seems to keep coming back, even though it seems to keep rearing its head, there will be a day when it is removed for good because there is a time coming when all evil will be finished 
forever. When the living Jesus returns a second time, trials are going to come until that day. Evil is gonna keep on affecting our lives until that day, but God is in control. This day, every day that has been and every day that will be. We can trust him fully through every high and every low. So we've seen the agony. We've seen now the arrest, but the story is continuing to move. As Jesus is arrested and led away into Jerusalem, his, his 12 disciples, they melt away into the night. All but one, Peter, he had sworn that he would follow Jesus to prison and even to death. He just earlier leapt forward to slice off the ear of the high priest's servant. He's stealthily following behind the group. And that brings us to the third scene, the denial. Peter's eager to prove his loyalty to Jesus and he follows the group of guards through the dark streets all the way to the house of the high priest. Now, we're back on the far side of Jerusalem here. So if we go to our, our next clip, we've got, they've been up here, they've been on the, on the Mount of Olives up on the right-hand side. They've now been taken. The temple priests have come from the temple. They've arrested Jesus. They walk back down through here to somewhere in this area. Um, now we're here at this area. You can see this group of houses, the Mount of Olives is over there. There's the temple. And, and somewhere in here uh, is, is where the high priest's house would have been. Now, we've actually found a house, which a lot of scholars believe is the house of the high priest. It's a big ornate one. It's got all of the religious things you'd expect. And that house is located uh, in, in just around in here. Um, so we've got, we've got a picture there of, of what this house looked like that they've found. Now, this might not be the exact house that Jesus was kept in. Uh, Archaeology works that way after 2,000 years. But even if it's not, that house would have had similar features to this one. We've got a central courtyard here where, where we're going to see Peter in a moment. And then often one of these side rooms is where Jesus would have been kept by, by the guards, uh, keeping, him, keeping him prisoner. So we've got Peter there. He's in the courtyard. He's watching and he's waiting. And, and last week we watched on as Peter, just earlier that night, had predicted that, G, that Peter... That Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crowed the next morning. Now, Peter had emphatically denied that this would ever happen. He says, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Peter's got a great opportunity now to demonstrate his commitment to his savior. But look what happens next. A servant girl recognizes him as a Galilean and says, this man was with him. What is Peter gonna do? How is, how is Peter gonna respond? Peter responds with cowardice. Woman, I, I don't know him. The night wears on. It's the getting, getting towards the, the middle of the night and someone recognizes him again. Someone walking past goes, you, you, you also, you're one of them. And again, denial. Man, I, I'm not. And then it gets to the early hours of the morning. It's getting a bit chilly. The fire's, fire's dying down and Peter is still there. He's still waiting in the courtyard. And again, he is recognized. Again, he replies, this time with a, a hint of irritation. Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just then the rooster crows. Jesus, he turns around looking, looking Peter directly in the eye. And Peter realizes what he's done. 
just hours before, he swore that he would never deny Jesus. He swore that, that he would rather die and already he's, he's given in, he's failed. He leaves the courtyard and he goes outside and he weeps bitterly. Can you relate to Peter here? Uh, I'm guessing that you've never been in the room with the savior of the world in chains just over there, uh, but perhaps your courage, your commitment to Jesus uh, has, has slipped and failed in other ways. What happens to Peter after this is an encouragement for all of us, all of us who fail. As Adam mentioned last week, Peter's Peter's walk with Jesus does not end here. His denial is not the end of the story. After Jesus' resurrection, Jesus takes Peter aside and asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? One time for each denial. And and Peter's shame is removed and his courage is restored. And it is vital to see that Peter never lost his faith in Jesus here. He never stopped believing in who Jesus is and his faith isn't what failed. His courage is what failed. And I, for one, can definitely relate to that. So it is so comforting to know that even though our courage might fail, that doesn't mean that our faith has. Is that, is that feeling ringing a bell in your own life? Um, maybe you had an opportunity to share Jesus with somebody and you said nothing, or you were in a situation where the name of Jesus was being slandered at work or among your mates and, and you didn't speak up. Maybe someone says, what are you doing on the weekend? And you, you, you don't really mention church. Or someone asks you, are you all religious? And you brush it off, nah, nah, it's just the wife or, or, the, or the parents, they just drag me along. Maybe you saw a need and you felt prompted, prompted to give, to supply that need, to, to bless that need, but you, you didn't do it out of fear of losing some of your own comforts. Maybe you don't share anything about faith on Facebook because you don't wanna deal with the comments. There are so many ways and so many more ways than what I just said that we can see ourselves in Peter's shoes here. So if that's you, be encouraged. Our failures, no matter how big or how small, don't take away our salvation because our salvation never depended on us. Isn't that the whole point of Easter, right? That that Jesus went to the cross to take our punishment, to drink that cup of our sin so that we wouldn't have to. So do you feel guilt or shame or or remorse about ways that that you've slipped up in your walk with God? Maybe even as strongly as Peter, who upon realizing his failure, went outside and wept bitterly. Take that to Jesus. He has taken the cup of God's judgment and he offers you forgiveness. He doesn't ask you to pay for what you've done because we can't do that. All he asks is, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? The failure of Peter shows us how far a loyal follower of Jesus can fall and how much further the loving mercy of Jesus extends alongside them. But in this moment, Peter is devastated 
He's denied his Lord. He's, he's fled the home and he's gone outside. But inside, things just keep going downhill for Jesus. And that brings us to our final scene, the decision. We, we read that the guards who are watching Jesus, they start to get a bit bored. Uh, they decide to play a twisted version of blind man's bluff. They, they blindfold him, they take terms beating him up and, and saying, prophesy, who was it that hit you? And until finally, finally dawn breaks and, and Jesus is rushed away to a council of the chief priests and the scribes. They've set up a fake court to get a death sentence for Jesus. And this trial, it's over before it even began. Scholar Daryl Bock, he counts seven different ways that this court breaks the rules of trial established in Jewish texts from the time. There was never any intent from these teachers of the law to find out, if to, find, to find a fair verdict. There's never any intent from the chief priests to discover if this truly is the Messiah, the, the savior of the world. Jesus, to them, was, was an obstacle, an embarrassment. And they had set this sham court up to find an excuse to get rid of him. Knowing this, Jesus refuses to give them any clear answers, so they just twist his words and call the, clay, call the case closed. Now, seeing this sort of injustice might remind us of injustices that we see in the world. Injustices which make our blood boil, which fill us with an anger at the evil behind them miscarriages of justice make us angry because our sense of justice is there to reflect the justice of our creator. For our God, he describes himself as a God of justice. And so we see Jesus here, the only sinless man and also the eternally just God enduring a phony trial at the hands of his enemies. Now he endures their, their twisted judgment for now but he warns them of the reality that he will soon reign in the seat of eternal judgment. He says, but from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. These judges don't just allow injustice, they cause the injustice. But Jesus is going to bring all evils to light and will ensure that justice is done for them all. Now, just earlier, we thought about the reality that God is in control and that the evil which he permits will be destroyed forever at Jesus' return. That, that destruction of evil will, will include righteous judgment at injustice. And we read about this in many places. I find it particularly vivid in Revelations 20. There's a, a great throne before which we will all stand. And this, this reality of final judgment, that should both encourage us and terrify us it encourages us because we know that Jesus is going to bring complete eternal justice we can see injustices now and know that they will not go unpunished they will not be forgotten by the almighty God each injustice that occurs now he is going to set straight on that day of judgment but that should also terrify us because Jesus is going to bring complete eternal judgment. I, for one, know that I've got a, a lot of evil to answer for. If, if I was to be put up in front of that throne and, and, and receive the punishment for, for all of my failings, all of my sins, all of my flaws, all of the injustices that I've been a part of or that I haven't stopped, I wouldn't be able to stand that. I wouldn't be able to drink that cup. 
However, my faith is in Jesus. So that means that he's already drunk that cup in my place. He is the mighty judge who will bring justice, but he is also the savior who for his people has taken the punishment that they deserve. So is the same true for you? Jesus has offered us forgiveness freely. He has already earned it for us. But have you taken him up on that offer, the the best offer you could ever have? When Jesus drank that cup of God's wrath, did he drink, did he take that righteous judgment in your place? This is why Jesus came, right? He came to go to the cross for for you and for me. And that's what Luke is showing us in this passage. The disciples' apathy, Judas' betrayal, Peter's weakness, the soldiers' abuse, the court's perversion of justice. All this shows us why Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross for real sin, real human rebellion against God. He went to the cross for a humanity which hadn't just ignored God a little bit, who has spat in the face of our creator. And he went not just for the sins of humanity then, for his disciples and and the people around him then, not just for the sins of people who were around before him, who were looking forward to a savior, but he went for all of the sins of all of those who would ever place their trust in him. We need this. We, we must have this. We can't drink that cup ourselves. As humans, we are fully united in our responsibility for our own sins and in our need for our great saviour. So as we watch Jesus take this burden and feel this eternal need alone, we can't pretend to be just observers to all that Jesus endures because we can't claim to be any better than the people who failed or betrayed or abused Jesus that night. And so if the story ended here at the crucifixion, if the story ended on that Friday, then Christianity would be just all about looking at the dead Jesus and feeling shame because we suck so much and he had to die. But that is not the end of the story because on Easter Sunday, we will celebrate the most important part of this whole story, the center point of all of cosmic history, that Jesus defeated death, that he broke the chains of sin. He defeated that great enemy. He didn't just go and die in our place. He didn't just take our burdens, but he overcame them. He is risen. And that means that we don't just worship a dead savior, we, we worship and praise and follow a living conqueror. The good news of Jesus isn't one of shame because we don't worship a dead savior. We worship a victorious savior. And that means that we bring him our shame and our failure and our sin and our weakness and he takes it and he turns it into his victory. So we can go out as Christians after looking at this passage and and seeing all that our Savior went through, we can go out with a sense of joy, not a sense of shame. Because our Savior has not only borne the penalty for our failures, he has overcome our failures. Now, we're gonna leave our suffering Savior here for now. 
we still haven't reached the worst of his experience, but this helps us to appreciate the true enormity of what happens next. I would love to have you join us on, on Good Friday as we, at, at 9 a.m. as we look at the cross and all that happens in, in the rest of Friday. And then I would love for you to join us on Easter Sunday at 9 a.m. as we move to the empty tomb, to Christ's victory over death itself. I invite you to join us then and I encourage you to invite along a friend or a family member who doesn't know Jesus. Because this, this lamb of God, he was, he was beaten, he was mocked, he was scorned to pay our debt in full. Let's share that news. I would love to, to pray with and, and for all of us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Lord, we thank you that, that you did not spare your son for us. We thank you that you sent him to pay for the sins of the world. Christ Jesus, we thank you for all that you have done. We thank you for all that we have, we have looked at and that we have seen as we have, as we have looked upon uh, your, your agony, your arrest, as we've looked upon the denial and upon the decision, Lord. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you will continue to, to apply these words to our hearts as we go from here. Help us to, to look in awe upon all that our Savior has done for us. And help us to then go and live in light of this. We ask this in your name. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.